Hello, and welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. In this podcast series, I talk with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. I am so excited that my friend Sandra Jackson Dumont, director and CEO of the new Lucas Narrative Museum of Art in Los Angeles, is here today to join in our ongoing conversation about art education. The Lucas Narrative Museum of Art, which is slated to open its doors in 2023, celebrates the universal art of visual storytelling through illustrations, paintings, comic art, photography, the arts of filmmaking, including animation and visual effects, and educational programming. Sandra has an amazingly rich background in arts education. I, I won't take the time to list all the things that she's done, but she most recently served as the chair of education and public programs at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. And before that, she was at the uh, Seattle Art Museum. And before that, she worked at the Studio Museum in Harlem, my heart, as well as the Whitney Museum of Art in New York City. It is no surprise that she has a well-deserved reputation for being a visionary for how museums can live as public spaces in the modern world. She and her husband are raising their godchildren, Valerie, who's 16, and Carlissa, who's 12. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Sandra. Thank you. <laughs> so happy to have you here. We have known each other since your days at the Studio Museum many, many years ago. And as sad as I was to see you leave the Studio Museum, it's been thrilling to watch your advancement in the museum world. So I'm so excited to have you here to allow us to tap into your vast knowledge of the universe of arts education. And you've got a great personal perspective on parenting as well, as you're raising a tweener and a teenager. So <laughs> let's get started. So first thing I want to talk with you about is the value of arts education to children from zero to 18. And, and I start with zero because I know that there's been research on the brain development that happens with children and art. Can you talk a little bit about sort of what the magic of exposing children to art as a really early age in terms of what that does for them? Yeah, I mean, one of the things, first of all, thank you, Carol, for inviting me to participate in this. I am so happy that you're doing this because you have always been someone that has just been incredibly insightful for so many reasons about so many things. And it wasn't until I became a parent myself that I realized how insightful you were also about parenting. <laughs> a whole, an entire avalanche of material information, knowledge, ideas, shortcuts to information and ways of being kind of really just fell from you when I, when I was like, I'm seeing a nine-year-old now all of a sudden. You were just like, wow, okay. Did you know I used to have a blog? I'm like, what? So I really appreciate that. Um, to your question on the the value of early access and exposure to arts education, you and I have talked about this before. I think one of the critical things that are associated with young people um, and early formation is how they connect with their parents. And I think through visual art um, and through these kinds of creative experiences, whether it's painting with food, like painting with strawberries, mm -hmm. like eating and touching and understanding texture and mm -hmm. space at that age, you know, through a visual experience. Um, I don't think that we can underestimate it, but sometimes we think about that, um, learning those things through a very um, 
uh, rudimentary fashion, like stand mm-hmm. up, walk, you know, and standing <laughs> up and walking can have so many other kind of ways of being through a visual experience. And so early on, arts education becomes um, uh, synonymous with who we become as individuals as we grow up. You know, I love the image that I just got of a little tiny one, old enough to sit up in a high chair, smearing the food around their tray. And for a parent to be able to look at that and not say, oh my gosh, what a mess, but Mm -hmm. you're making art. (laughs) You're making art on your face. You're making art on the tray. And, and maybe that will help parents sort of keep a sense of humor and sort of a lighter perspective on it because children are so tactile when they move their hands around food and when they put their hands to their mouth and they miss their mouth. I mean, there's, it's really, it, it, I hadn't thought about it that way, but it really is a, a wonderful introduction to the concept of, of making art, of, of seeing things, seeing things in color and being able to impact it. I've done a little bit of research on physiologically what the brain does when for little children in, in art exposure. And it's amazing how flexible a little tiny child's brain is and how much it can absorb. Like we know that it's, you're supposed to teach children language as an early, at an early age because foreign languages, because they pick them up sooner. They also pick up um, a lot of great abilities through visual stimulation when they're really young. They've language skills, uh, the, the higher order thinking, motor skills, they're really impacted by experiences. I, I can remember taking my, oh, he was, I don't know, five months old in, in a little uh, snuggly, my son to the Met and with a friend. And both of us are thinking, this is really silly. I mean, <laughs> it was more for the parents to walk around and, you know, have a change of venue, but come to discover that's actually a really good thing to do, <laughs> to take your infant to the art museum. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Understanding art and being exposed to art and art education helps children when they get to school in terms of communication skills and even more empathy. Um, and I know, you know, from your experience at the Met, and, and I'd love you to talk about that just a little bit with your work with the teens, how arts education builds creative voices. How did you go about sort of helping kids feel like the museum was a place not only that they could feel comfortable, that they could express themselves? You know, it's so interesting. Uh, I'll talk about that in two seconds, but I think this idea of you going to the Met with your children, do you know how many times I've heard that story? I literally (laughs) know two and three generations of people who are like, and this year we always bring our kids to the Met or to a museum in Seattle. Mm -hmm. It was like, I would get generations, like two or three generations of people who have taken their picture on this one sculpture that sits outside of the Seattle Art Museum at the Asian Art Museum. And literally it would be like, this is my grandmother who sat on there. This is my mother who sat on this same thing. And this is me. And it becomes a ritual of trying to understand your context to the greater world. I also have to say, I think it's so fascinating. There's a reason why a lot of museums, unbeknownst to a lot of people, have stroller tours. Like literally there are tours where parents are walking through the museum with a stroller. Um, Their baby is in the stroller in these very important developmental moments. And they are looking at works of art and the parents are talking and having conversations. And so, so that's actually a very important kind of early introduction to looking at works of art. The other thing is that at a lot of museums, including the Met, one of the things that we used to do, and we'll do this at the Lucas Museum too, 
a story time where young people mm. are learning words, but there's a reason why those early books have visuals in them. Mm -hmm. um, you are learning to see and comprehend and understand language all at the same time, but most of the time you're also learning to sing a song. And so your motor skills are active, your observation skills are active, how you communicate verbally is starting to be formed. And, and in that moment, it's super exciting and fun. Mm -hmm. And so you asked me what, how we got young people engaged at the Met. Um, it was because it was about them and it considered who they were in the world, as opposed to it being about what we wanted them to just know and learn. Mm -hmm. um, it was what is the healthiest space we can create for young people to be themselves? And that. Mm. That's exactly what we did. And what are the things that they're interested in in their daily lives? And how does that intersect with some really incredible things that are happening in the museum, whether it's a work of art or an, or an event? And then most importantly, one of the things I'm really invested in is how do we get people to realize that museums are not a speck in the world, but they're in and of the world. They actually should reflect the world and they should reflect you. Mm -hmm. so that's how we got them involved and engaged because it was their space. It wasn't the museum space that that was um, kind of trying to seduce them. It was literally their space um, for mm -hmm. them to be. Museums have traditionally been these monuments on the hill where they are filled with paintings or artifacts. And, and you have said this, you visit a museum as if you're invited in and you have to be on your best behavior as opposed to a library where, and, and these are your words, you know, when you go to a library, you go to a library to use it. Many, many people can find museums really intimidating. And sometimes I think it's on purpose. I mean, and, and how, did, how did you break through that? And how do you help others do that as well? Yeah, it's really interesting. You talked about your love for the Studio Museum in Harlem. Um, I count myself as like a very, very, very blessed alum of that incredible place. I think any place that actually wants to be relevant, has to consider who it is that they're trying to be relevant to. Mm -hmm. um, I came to this because when I was a child, um, I, I grew up in a very under-resourced community. My mother's from rural Mississippi. She moved to San Francisco, which is where I am from. And I ended up, you know, being exposed to a lot of things, but a lot of those things were not necessarily fun. So museums weren't fun for me as a child. I they were an assignment. And I thought they were kind of interesting, but parks were more interesting. Visual art museums were not so interesting to me, but natural history museums and places like that. I grew up in San Francisco, so the Exploratorium was an incredible place where you could do, you could touch, you could crawl, you could make, you could take your shoes off and jump around. You could basically have an experience like that that didn't feel like it had too many guardrails on it, but you kind of knew how to respect the space, right? There was always mm -hmm. someone there saying like, don't really squish the cow's eyeball, like just touch it, you know? <laughs> um, don't kill the sea anemone, like put your finger there and let it grab your <laughs> finger, right? That kind of thing. And so I grew up very shy and it wasn't until, um, and I grew up in the church. Uh, music was something that was really important to me participating in dance and theater became important just because I happened to walk in a door where I heard music and I heard kids laughing. And I walked in and this great educator, Judith Holton, who also, interestingly enough, she was a dancer and a member of Sun Ra's orchestra. Wow. And she was like, come, come in. 
And I was just invited into this creative process and I ended up taking dance and theater and ballet and jazz dance and all these things just because this woman was like, come on in. She was very interested in community building through the arts. And it was there that I like started to understand what she talked about and what Sun Ra like talked about as like the Black imagination. Imagination as a creative tool, not something that is just frivolous or something that, you know, oh, she's imaginative, but it is actually a skill set. It is it is a way of being. And if you can imagine yourself out of spaces, then you could actually create an environment by which you could live in a new space that you've created. And it was through all of that visual stuff and trips that she took us on that for whatever reason, some of them were the same places that my school took me to. And they became dramatically interesting through the lens of this incredible visionary educator. So when you describe the teacher beckoning you in to to introduce you to the arts, it now makes perfect sense why that is how you interact with not just children, but everyone in terms of how you design and and create your museum spaces. Because mm-hmm. at the Met, you have certainly at Seattle, I mean, you turned that museum into a joyous place for people to dance and celebrate on certain nights. You've just made it a community space. And at the Met, the monument on the hill Met where it had a teen takeover, thanks to you. And and so it all makes perfect sense now. And I'm sure that that's in the works for the Lucas Museum as well. I mean, <laughs> there will be, uh, I'm sure there will be lots of things for children and people to do that they might not ordinarily think they could do in a museum. It's kind of almost in some ways the thing that people don't want to talk about, like this leveling of the playing field, this idea that high and low, which is what the Studio Museum actually does on a daily basis, too. Like it's what Elmer's Vale does. It's what the Bronx Museum does. It's what Wing Luke Museum does in Seattle. It is literally saying these voices matter. And so this idea of narrative art has kind of like cut across time and place and artists. A lot of the artists that I know and love, you know and love, that are arguably in many of these collections that we have come to adore, they wouldn't necessarily be considered narrative artists, but every artist that I can think of has had some narrative impulse in their career. So there is some moment in their lives where they've embraced this notion of a story. And so at the Lucas Museum, I'm so thrilled that we are building a 300,000 square foot building that is incredible. I mean, just incredible learning spaces, engaging spaces. I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt you one second and have you say that again. 300,000 square feet. I mean, lots of football yeah. fields. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the fourth floor alone is just exhibition space and there's 80,000 square feet. A football field is about 57, 58,000 square feet. That's like a football field and a mm-hmm. half. And to have that be just a really open floor plate is pretty incredible. I guess the 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 short answer is that we will be a cultural commons, a place where people will will come together and I can imagine festivals and performances and behind the scenes and uh, critical conversations. We hope that they will be brave conversations, they'll be inspired conversations, and that we will have a very people first approach to our that work. That sounds wonderful. And it sounds like parents will be able to come and feed their own souls and minds and, and have their children engaged as well. And getting back to, to the parents part of, of art mm-hmm. and art education, 
You know, we've talked about this before, but I know that one of the things you're really interested in is how parents lean into learning about art and, and museums in partnership with their children. I think talking about art is a great place for this conversation because even parents, again, I go back to the slightly intimidating parts of art museums and how how can we encourage parents to lean into the learning along with their kids? Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that parents can do is actually uh, get acquainted with the education departments at every institution that they just that they think is even remotely interesting. And they don't only have to be children's museums. There's something to be said about taking kids to performances that are just performances. You know, they're not necessarily quote unquote for children. I think one of the most amazing things about parents and children doing things together is that they both become the teachers and they both become the learners. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, that actually has a level of democracy that helps young people develop a level of confidence that it takes years for people to, to develop. And so the confidence of being able to stand in front of a room and show, do show and tell, I don't think people completely underestimate show and tell <laughs> that, you know what I'm saying? It's like to see your parent who partnered with you on this, they didn't just make their own thing, but you make critical decisions together about this thing you made. And so they're going to say something, you're going to say something, you're going to acknowledge your parent, like, good job, mom or dad. (laughs) And then they're going to say like, you know, like, good on you. That's modeling good behavior. And then, you know, but that's cementing some of those things, but the power to be able to make something creative and then have it immediately shared is so incredible. And it's a confidence builder so that later in life, when people are thinking about public speaking, thinking about, you know, sharing an idea, they actually feel more compelled to do so. A lot of programs are really about drop-off. There's nothing wrong with that. I think those are super important. But I also think that it's important to balance that out with doing things together with young people because parents are their child's first teachers. You've heard me say that Mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's very, very important that they see parents as learners as well, not just the all omnipotent know-it-alls of the world. So much I would unpack in what you just said. First of all, the concept of making art together. Now, we're still in, in this pandemic and people have been at home with their children for a long time. And I know that people can be at the point now where they've just run out of things to do. The concept of making something together, I mean, making art together, that to me, many people may not have done it yet. Um, And not only making something together, but showing and telling about it. I love that because I can just see how you're right. The dynamic changes. If you and your child, or or you you have teams with if there if there are lots of adults in the house, but if you are tasked with making something, taking ingredients or taking materials and making something, and then you have to talk about it, that that just seems like a a fun exercise um, in in a lot of different things in team building, in communicating, in supporting one another, and to your point, in confidence building. It seems to me that that is a great activity. I mean, uh, you know, you can play Scrabble all day, but I mean, this this is something that it seems like you really can get a lot out of. Now, I know that a lot of museums are open, and and, yeah. and I've also heard it's a I haven't gone yet myself, but I heard it's a great time to go to the museum because there aren't that many people there. But one of the things I really want to talk to you about is how people move through museums, how parents can move through museums with their children. I would take my kids to the museums 
over time. But I have to confess, there was a little bit of a don't touch that, you know, stay here. There was a lot of rules. Can you talk a little bit about the ways that parents can actually make museums work for them in terms of places to take their kids? Oh, yeah. So I have like a million ways you could do this. One, most museums have these guides. Sometimes they're for children and sometimes they're not. They're just really helpful materials for parents. So that's that's one thing. You can take them on a guided visit. There are other ways that you can think about this. You can create visuals for a soundtrack. You could say, what's our favorite song? Right now we're listening to A, B, and C, whatever it is. Um, we're listening to Beyonce or we're listening to like a remake, a kid's version of Al Green. I don't know. But whatever it is, you can say, okay, so the theme today is love. Let's find 10 paintings based on love. And you walk through the museum and they're searching for love, if you will, right? That's another option. Another thing you might do is in advance of going, and it doesn't mean like you have to like schedule, like go and do all the research. But if you go to the museum, go to the front desk and say, can you tell me where the bathrooms are? One, can you tell me where the food is? (laughs) Two, Can you tell me where, like, just ask your questions and being equipped with that, you can actually like find things around those areas. There's always someone at the desk who can answer questions for you. My kid likes bicycles or my son is really interested in transportation right now. Um, Or, and that person at the front desk can actually help you. They're not just there to direct you to the front door tickets or whatever. They can answer content-based questions. Another option is to go to the family programs. There are so many family programs and they're usually free festivals with talent and all kinds of things. And what happens is you're not only going as a family, but your kids actually get to meet other people that they can have play dates with at another time, you know, um, when we're safe. I think one other thing um, one might consider is if there's an assignment that your kid has that can connect to a museum, to museum content. Right now, my goddaughter just did an assignment on Gaia, the goddess Mother Earth. And she came to me and she said, I remember seeing Gaia at the Met. Um, Is there something on the website that I could find? There's also, and the final thing I'll say, because there's a million and one ideas, there's also, depending on the size and scale of the institution, in this moment, young people are not getting outside a lot. You can go to a museum and you can literally do a museum workout where you walk around the museum <laughs> and you stop and you look at works of art. We did that at the Met um, uh, with an artist. Uh, Limor Tomer curated this um, performance series where you actually did a museum workout before the museum opened and walked around and, uh, to music and a workout and really looked at works of art while you worked out. There are a million ways to use the museum. It's it's incredible. So those are just a few. Those are great. And and tying this back to something you, you talked about early on, and that is the, the, the Black imagination. Certainly you could go to a place like the Studio Museum, which also is not open now, but if it were open, or, or the, the culturally specific museum in your community, and you could say to your children, find people that look like you or find um, images that remind you of home. But even in these larger institutions, it may be a bit more of a challenge, but you can encourage your children to find images that look like themselves or people that, that remind them of people they know and family members. And that that does a lot. First of all, we've all we all know that our children seeing images of themselves in art is is confidence building. It leads parents to have good conversations about history and and it, it gives children a sense of themselves as being. Um, on a continuum as opposed to just where they are now. 
But it's also a pride building exercise because I would imagine that if you walk into this big place that you might not feel that you belong and then you find these faces that look like yours. I mean, we all know the little girl who was transfixed by Amy Sherrill's depiction of Michelle Obama. I mean, it <laughs> seeing somebody that looks like you or somebody you know or want to know can just, you know, it can change your life. So, <laughs> you know, what's interesting, Carol, about that, that is so on point. And it's about like being able to see images of yourself. And sometimes those images of yourself are not, some people haven't depicted people in positive mm-hmm. ways. And what's incredible is the ability to ha- have the museum be a place where you can have those very uncomfortable conversations and feel safe. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe in safe spaces, but I think that museums can be safer than the average space mm-hmm. to be able to have some difficult conversations about um, important issues. And you kind of understand that the very presence of these ideas being in a museum is that they actually might end up standing the test of time. That's what's unfortunate about them. And so you end up having good conversations. One story that I think is super powerful, well, a couple of things that happened, stuff always happened at Teen Safety Map, but one of the stories that just like totally changed me on so many levels, <laughs> um, I'll tell you this story and I'll tell you one about my goddaughter. During Teens Take the Met, I went into the bathroom and- um, Let me just interrupt one quick second. Teens Take the Met is the program you designed to invite children from all over New York into the museum. They, it was their night at the museum. Yeah, it was their night at the museum. It was while the museum was open. And we had usually about 50 to 60 partners Mm -hmm. join us. And so you could write a one minute play with this particular organization. You could have a 10 minute dance class with Alvin Ailey or Martha Graham Dance Company, um, all in response to works of art in the galleries. And so it was like also an introduction to all these resources that were in every borough around the city. Um, And so young people could find out about stuff that was in other parts of the city while at the Mm -hmm. Met. So it became almost like a clearinghouse of great stuff for young people, Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know? And it was just really about them. We had teen performances and all that kind of stuff, teen comedians, all kinds of things. (laughs) So Um, I interrupted your story. um, You went into the bathroom. (laughs) I went into the bathroom and there were all these like girls in there, you know, doing their thing, you know, fixing their hair, doing their makeup, having conversations, all of which I'm not supposed to see or whatever. But I would, for them, I was just a regular person. And when I was done, I was just kind of stood there because of the conversation in the, in the stall though. I just listened. Um, it was almost like my own private little recon session or focus group. And I could hear them talking. And one young lady was like, so what is it like to wear that? Um, and the other girl was like, what do you mean? She was like, you know, like, don't you feel like you are like being um, kind of, um, I can't remember the language, but it was like, you're being oppressed kind of thing. And I came out of the stall and one little girl, these were kids of color. And one little girl was just, you know, like with her jeans and her t-shirt or whatever. And, and, you know, you know, hair out, you know, you know, um, baby hair or edges all done, you know, and everything. And then the other little girl edges done, eyebrows on fleek, looked amazing. And she was wearing a Mm -hmm. hijab. So what they were talking about was, this one year little girl was asking the other, like, don't you feel oppressed having to wear the hijab? Because, at the, you know, like in the world, like it's almost like um, Islamic children um, or women are oppressed. And she said, do you feel oppressed that people gawk at hmm. you? Men look at you. And I am thought about because of my brain. They're not looking at my body. 
actually see my hijab as being like super empowering. So I come out and I watch, and I was just like, this is amazing. <laughs> and then, then the other little girl says, what do you, so, so do you have, what's on under that? And she has like the, the latest Air Force Ones, the little girl in the hijab, <laughs> like Nike sneakers. And she reaches, pulls up her dress and, and reaches under, and she has on like the same jeans as the other girl. Like her outfit underneath is like all about teen, you know? And it was amazing. And then I said, you know, what's so powerful in my mind, I was like, wow, this is so powerful. Should I tell them that she could go and see a representation of a little girl in a hijab in those Islamic manuscripts from like a thousand years ago? Mm. So I was like, you know, you should go up to the Islamic galleries. Like there's representations of young people that look just like you. And then I just washed my hands and I walked out. And later on, I was walking through the museum with some funders and there they were, mm-hmm. right? And it's just so like, it's that stuff that happens. It, I, I had, there was a conversation I remember at one event about gender fluidity and someone was like, it's this amazing conversation, but why are we having it in a museum doing, during Pride Month? And I was like, why are you having it in a museum? I can, people act like this conversation is new, <laughs> but there's always been third genders. Mm-hmm. And art history tells you that, right? You can go upstairs into so many of these galleries. And so like you as a young person, like looking at your gender fluidity, you should know that there are generations that have come before you that figured this out. And it's just, it was so amazing to participate in those kinds of conversations um, at a place like Teens Take the Met. And they were just the most unusual discussions that you would have. But you're not going to see young people just on the street, on the train saying like, you know, do you feel oppressed without it erupting into something else? in the bathroom right. at the Met? Doing their eyebrows, touching up their makeup, and they just started talking to each other. And I just thought that was so powerful. Yeah. And so for me, that's that becomes like the the joy of an institution like a, a museum, you know? Absolutely. And I will tell you that those instances you described will have impacted those young people forever. I mean, the next time the young woman who's asking the question sees someone in the hijab, it, it's not just, oh, I know someone who wears that, but I understand the history. I mean, that's why having these conversations in a museum matters. In an earlier podcast, Franklin Sermons, who you know well, uh, talked about his own, one of the moments when he really felt connected to art was being able to stand in Monet's water lilies and understand that it was blue paint on a canvas, but to be really transported to a place where he was surrounded by water and the magic of that, the the magic Mm -hmm. of museums to transport people, those two little girls sitting in that uh, area, looking at those pictures, they were, sort of experiencing the world in a different way that'll that'll stay with them forever. So, I mean, clearly yeah. I'm a fan of all this. You can I, I can't oversell this. How many different impactful experiences that your children, you and your children can have in in an art museum. I hate to move away from this conversation, but there's one more thing I wanted to ask you about, which is online museum work. When I started my blog and I started to sort of dive into museum educational sites online, and this is years ago, I was blown away at the amount of material that exists there Mm. that few people know about. And I can only imagine that now, as museums are forced to put all of their programming online, that that's even greater. I mean, the Met had just, there are layers and layers. There's, you you can enter sites as a teacher. I mean, you just push the teacher button and you have access to curriculum. 
It is mind boggling mm-hmm. how much is out there. And tell me this, when we're out of this, when we're not so isolated, how do you think that that will impact the online presence of museums going forward? I mean, do you think that it'll change the balance some or, or will they just sort of pay less attention to what they're putting out online and focus more on the person in the institution? Well, first of all, education departments and community engagement departments have been doing this forever. I mean, in fact, people like Lowry Sims and others actually were, you know, figuring out how the museum could exist outside of its physical footprint since the 60s. I mean, and there are people that did it before Mm -hmm. then. Um, I mean, even the Studio Museum, like, you know, the fact that it actually had early learning programs that literally did not take place in the physical museum. Like they, they literally took place at... PS45 in Harlem, schools that are like tiny schools, like one of the earliest preschools in existence as a public school, the Studio Museum worked with. So I think that the online piece, um, I think it actually has some interesting headway. I think now more than ever, people are starting to realize that it doesn't have to be transactional, that it can be experiential. So if you think about before, it was like, we're going to put these lesson plans online and they're at your disposal. Now it is, we are going to put some lesson plans online or they exist online, but let's have a conversation about it. Let's have people, let's have experts available to you. Let's participate. You can, um, you can actually watch things live and in living color. You know, like here in LA, the Museum of Natural History, I remember someone saying, oh yeah, you know, such this animal was giving birth and you could watch it. You know, it's like amazing. (laughs) All these things, it's like, or you could, you know, go into the aquarium and the person underwater is going to like answer questions while they're (laughs) underwater and and see it's this museum. It's like all this like really interesting stuff. I will say that none of that takes the place. It's a different kind of experience. It's an important experience. Um, but it's it's different. It's like shopping online. I hate to be so rudimentary about it, but it's the difference between shopping online and having and touching the fabric mm-hmm. in person. Um, and we know uh, that that those two things are not synonymous. They are different experiences. Part of which is your human interactions with others as you're doing mm-hmm. it. Um, and so the great thing about being in museums is that I think there is going to be attention to detail as a, um, a, around people's in-person experiences. I think that's going to be dramatically different. It's going to be a while, I feel, before people feel completely comfortable. Mm-hmm. Even when the veil is lifted for us to go out, I don't think everyone will feel as secure as they used to about gathering in groups. So that will even look different. Mm-hmm. So a concert will feel different than it used to. And so what does it look like to have an experience that is pairs up online and in person? Mm-hmm. Like I can imagine that happening where there's a hybrid experience of sort. The final thing is that I think people have been a little bit more creative. I think they are trying to figure out like, how do we actually have a livelihood? I think this scared people so much who had no online presence, no presence out there, that they realized their vulnerability was not just about relevance. It was truly also about mm-hmm. access. And, and, and it called into question the very existence of a, of a cultural institution because, you know, we really depend on people coming to see the real thing. What does that mean when, when you need to think about online and in person, mm-hmm. you know? So I don't think, I don't think there's ever going to be a retreat back to um, the way it used to be. And I was talking to someone recently and I said, 
Um, so folks were like, what do you think it's going to be like when we get back to normal? I'm like, normal? Like, you, you act like nor- that was normal for most people. It wasn't normal for most people, right? Like, the way we were wasn't always great. Um, and so I think this is a wonderful opportunity for us to think about access. I do fear that we are thinking more, those resources that used to just be readily available and at no cost. I think people have started to try and figure out how to monetize them. Um, which I think is smart, but it'll be challenging. I hope it doesn't clamp access to certain information because, you know, people need to monetize those things. Yeah, yeah. Or, I mean, we'll see how that works because um, as the newspaper industry has learned, you it's hard to monetize something after you've offered it for free. I'm, I'm about to, to wrap up, but you, you mentioned that you had a story about your goddaughter. Yes. So um, a few years ago, there was this moment where we were experiencing kind of an unprecedented spree of shootings. Do you remember that in schools and yes, in yes, schools all yes. over in Florida? And there was just like in public spaces. And, and so at public schools, at schools in general, they were having active shooter training at institutions. There was a lot of active shooter training. Our goddaughter was, I think, in fourth grade at the time. She's in seventh grade now. And I just remember her like picking her up from school one day. And I was like, so how was school today? She was like, it was interesting. We did um, active shooter training. Like it was like, we drank water. And I was like, oh, what, what you, you, and so as she, I picked her up, she went to, she was in school in East Harlem. I picked her up and I had to go back to work. We went back to my office. She did some homework. And then we started leaving the museum. And because I worked there and sometimes would work late, there are times when the museum would shut down and the lights in the museum would be off. It would be like a night at the museum. I worked in the southern part of the building, but we would walk through the building. And in this case, I would normally go down underground and there's a little path there you can walk. And I was like, let's just walk through the gallery. So we walk through and we go through Greek and Roman and we're just chatting as we're walking through. We go through the Great Hall and then we cut over and we go through. I was like, let's just walk this way so we can mm-hmm. see more art. So we go through and we walk out and we walk through the um, arms and armor section. And we're talking about active shooting, et cetera, et cetera. And she says, this is what we need, T.T. Sand. And I was like, what? And she says, this. Like, if we just had these now. And I was like, what? what? And she said, like, we need armor. Like, this is nine, ten years old. And she's like, this is what we need. Like, like, look, the horses didn't get hurt. The people, they might have gotten like hurt, but they didn't die because they had like, it took a lot to kill them because they had. And so when people come to our schools and they want to shoot us, then if we had something like this and if we can make it like now, it would be if we could snap our fingers and we cover with this armor, like, you know, and it just, oh, my, a part of me inside just wanted to die. Mm-hmm. But I never see those galleries differently. You know what I mean? I'm walking through those galleries and I'm thinking, wow, like, imagine if we did find ourselves in a place of danger walking down the street. And it's just like immediately as danger was approaching, our bodies would know to have an armor. <laughs> and then I I showed her the work of Nick Cave and those, those brown suits which come out of that from Rodney King, mm-hmm. which allows me to talk to a, this kid about Rodney King, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. like. When is she going to learn about that? They'll teach that Rodney King in school, right? So it's just like this amazing opening up of of contemporary issues through something that is literally a thousand years old. And she is like looking at this like she knows this is old. Her brain is applying this to the situation that she's experiencing that is really scary. 
She has to deal with it. And so how do we actually use museums to address the potential of trauma? I mean, that is so powerful when you think about it. Absolutely. So excited and so sad. And I remember, so I use that example so many times over when I'm giving talks about the relevance of museums, like how we actually can use museums as imperatives to how we grow in the world. Like, like, just like we use libraries, like we use parks, like we use other things, like they are usable. They're not distant. They don't have to be, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but we've somehow been trained to, or I feel like someone has sequestered people out of this great thing to kind of keep it for themselves. Like that, that's what it feels like sometimes, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. and so a place like the Lucas Museum or a place like the Studio Museum or these places like the Met that are reshaping Mm -hmm. themselves, they're trying to do it, I think, in a way to kind of like dust off that stuff that actually has created this veneer of irrelevance because it's truly like an opportunity to just do amazing work um, and not pay a dime for it. Like literally, <laughs> you know. And so I just think it's, we want to support culture. Don't get me wrong. We right, want right, to support right, it. Right. But for those who, who don't have the resources, you can go in there and see the work. Yeah. So I just, that story always just blows me away. And of course she doesn't remember any of it. And I thought we were going into the place of like night at the museum and it's fun or this is scary or this is that. No, no, it was literally like her own little like complete tie back to what she experienced that day in school around the potential of trauma, like just the emotional preparedness of a nine-year-old has to have it during a moment like that is just scary, but interesting. That story, Sandra, is one of the greatest advertisements for why parents should walk through museums with their children and be a partner in the learning. Because as you said, once you see something through your child's vivid imagination, through their eyes, you won't see it the same way again. And and it's, it's growth for the both of you. Yeah. It's just incredible. So listen, I could just talk with you all day, <laughs> but I'm going to wrap it up here. I thank you so much for your time and your, your amazing conversation. And as usual, I sit in awe of all that you know about and that you've done. And I'm really happy you were able to share so much of it with with me and with parents who are listening. Um, So, But there's one very, very quick thing I need you to do before we go, and that is the GCP bonus round. So two quick questions. First, your favorite poem. Um, I think, I don't know if I have a a favorite, but one of my favorite poems is Audre Lorde's Therapy. Therapy. Okay. Audre Lorde. Love Audre Lorde. And your favorite two children's books. Two. Oh, okay. I thought about one. I guess, let me think of another. One, one of my favorites is Oh, the Places We Will Go by Dr. Seuss. Uh, I really love that one. I've given that to lots of adults when they're moving on to another chapter in their lives. And then I think Kadir Nelson's um, and um, Tanya Lee's Baby, Baby, Please. I love that book. I have bought, I feel like I should own stock in that book because I've given it away so much. But it's just so beautiful and and just feels joyful and loving. And so I love those two books. Those are great, great, great answers, Sandra. And I thank you again so much for being with us today. Thank you. I hope everyone listening enjoyed this conversation that you'll come back for more. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review where you find your podcasts and tell your friends. In the meantime, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at www.groundcontrolparenting.com for tons of parenting info and advice. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. Please send comments and questions on any of those platforms because we really want to hear from you. Until the next time, take care and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.